feel about the choir, right? <laughs> so today I actually had a vision of myself in the back wow. moving. Wow. I wasn't singing, though. I was just moving. <laughs> Lift your hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you so much today for your presence in this place. We ask that you would touch our hearts, let our hearts be good ground. We ask that you would bless the word, cause it to bring increase in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Claude. So um, today our sermon is still in this theme of who are you? As you know, the book of Ephesians, which is really just a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. It was circulated among all the churches in, in Asia Minor. It's a, it was a letter, and all of these churches, they would get the letter, and then they would... They would transcribe it, they would write it again, and they'd pass it around. And there are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of manuscripts, ancient manuscripts of this letter. Um, And today's passage, we're going to be in Ephesians 2. Today's sermon is called Before and After. Because it gives us just a, a moment, a glimpse of what it means from before we experience the grace of God to after we experience the grace of God. So I was in uh, Barnes & Noble this week. And there was a book, and I've seen it before. It's in the, the sports physical fitness section. And it's, it's called Body for Life by a guy named Bill Phillips. Now, I haven't read the book, but what's compelling about the book is that you open it up and there's all these before and after pictures. You ever seen these? You know, before, before you take our, our, our exercise program, this is what you look like. And then, you know, eight days later, after you take our exercise program, woo! And, um, you know, I mean, there's some legitimate changes in there but a lot of it sometimes you know you look at it and it's like the before picture the hair's messed up the person slouching they're looking sad the lighting's bad there's a bad backdrop you know and they're just moping around and then after you know they're all clenched and they're like tanned and the lights beaming you know um i decided about i actually don't know how long maybe maybe over a year maybe a year and a half i decided to take my before picture um, I'm still waiting to take my after picture. Um, that may be a few years down the road, and then I'll write a book called How to Lose Four Pounds in 14 Years. Uh, before, after, you've got to really look close. Um, so as we're talking about identity, we, we, uh, this, this week, my three-year-old, Lincoln, um, you know, these guys, Jameson and Lincoln, they take on different identities from time to time. So over the course of this weekend, at one point, they were gorillas. At another point, they were butterflies. At another point, they were cowboys. I mean, they just kind of... And we have this thing on Saturdays where we all sit down and we, I trim their fingernails. You know, those little, those little, those little uh, kids, their fingernails are sharp <laughs> and they get long. And so we sit down. So I sat down to trim Lincoln's fingernails this Saturday. And uh, whenever he wants to be tough, he talks in his bad boy, bad guy vice, you know, a voice. He says... Uh, Dad, I don't want you to trim my fingernails. And I said, why not, Lincoln? You know, he's three. He said, because I'm an eagle and those are my claws and I'm going to fly around the house. I was like, okay, all right, time to clip the fingernails. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's trying on his identity, right? In the book of Ephesians, Paul is trying to say to us, this is who you are. And then in the first three chapters, this is who you are. In the last three chapters, This is how you act if this is who you are. A lot of times in churches, we get that backwards. We try to act first, and we try to work our way into God's grace. We try to work our way into righteousness. 
And the book of Ephesians says, no, that's backwards. That's completely backwards. First, you've got to know who you are. And then the way you live, just, just, it's just an expression of who you are. It just pours out of your identity as who you are. And today, Paul goes one step back and says, this is who you were. This is who you were. This is who you are. And this is how you do in relation to who you are. You see? Um, so it's an amazing passage. Let's just jump right in. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Here's who he says you were. You were dead. You were dead. <laughs> Thank you, Paul, for that inspirational word. Uh, you were dead, he says, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, he says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is saying to us, this is not the whole passage, we, we get to go forward in about 10 minutes to who we are. But this is what he's saying about us. This is who you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is a hard concept for us to grasp because we're alive. We know we're alive because we're alive. <laughs> uh, but, but we don't recognize, it's hard to fathom the idea that our souls were dead. Before we were made alive in Christ, our souls were walking around dead in trespasses and sin. And that's the thing about being dead. You don't know that you're dead. Try to tell a dead person that they're dead. They will not agree with you. Um, it's like telling an insane person that they're insane, right? They don't think they're insane. They think you're insane, right? And Paul is saying, no, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Um, there was a in 1959, there was a social uh, psychologist, a researcher named Milton Rokich, and he performed this, this test. Uh, he performed this study at Ypsilanti State Hospital in Michigan. And uh, sort of a bizarre test, but what he wanted to do is he was working on this, this project about identity and how we form our beliefs. And so he had three candidates uh, that he, he was going to bring. They, were, they, had, they had been diagnosed as psychotic. Uh, all three of them believed they were Jesus Christ, okay? So he said, I'm going to take these three people who believe that they're Jesus Christ. I'm going to put them in a room together. We're going to walk through this process. It was a two-and-a-half-year study. And let's just see if they come to the realization uh, that they're not because, you know, they're with two other people who believe they are. Well, do you think it worked? No, it didn't work. At the end of the study, each one of them was like, these two are crazy. You know, I'm Jesus. These two are, you know. And so it's not easy to, to tell someone that is insane or someone that is dead. I mean, you, you can't fathom it because you don't have the capacity, right? God, this whole book of Ephesians is about what God is doing in our lives. Not what we are doing, but what God is doing to us, through us, um, Woody Allen says, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Uh, right? Was that? No. Um, <laughs> we, we don't like to think of ourselves as spiritually dead. We don't like to think of God's justice applying to us. 
We like to think of God's justice applying to others, right? Example, how many of you have ever gotten a, a, a ticket from a photo, you know, like one of those photo tickets, you know, and you get that in the mail. I got one the other day and uh, it was just my license plate. They can't prove it was me. Uh, I got one in the mail and you think, man, you know, that's not right for them. I mean, you know, that's not fair, right? They just, they just took a picture of me while I was driving. That's not fair. That's, and you think, why not? Right? That's justice, right? You were speeding, you got caught, and now you got to pay the fine. That's justice, right? We don't like it when justice is directed at us. We do like it when justice is directed at someone else, when justice benefits us. Our family, when we first moved into our home, uh, right after we moved in, we got broken into. We got burglarized. And we would, you know, they took some computers, they took some laptops and stuff like that. From that, from, from like the moment that happened for the next two months, every time we pulled up to the house, my wife would say, gosh, I hope they're not in there. I hope that the burglars are not in our house. Every time I pulled up, I, sa- I thought, man, I hope those burglars are in that house. Because I have some ideas about what I'm going to do to them, right? I had it all mapped out. I had all my MMA moves ready to go. I was going to take them out. I was going to mete out justice, right? We like it when justice is directed at someone else. We don't like it when it's directed at us. But Paul says, God's justice can't help but to see us in the light in which we are. We're walking in our trespasses and sins. What does that mean? He says that we are following the desires of our body and mind. If we are following the desires of our body and mind, that means we are our own gods, right? You worship who you obey. And if you're, if you're obeying the thoughts of your mind and body, and that's what's directing you, and that's what's driving all of your actions, you're your own God. And Paul is saying, we're going to clear the decks. We're going to reorient everything. God is going to make you alive, and then you are going to follow him. You're going to worship him. You're going to follow what he says to do as an, as an outpouring, as a growth, as a grace, as a gratitude towards what he's done for you. Um, we don't like to think of this concept as a, a, of our nature being broken, of our nature, of our spiritual nature being broken, being corrupt. We don't like to think of that, right? And there are various other views about human nature, right? And they've been around for a very, very long time. I'll go through just a couple of them. Um, you will hear, just in the culture in general, you will hear people say, you know, we're all basically good. We have some aberrations. Sometimes we slip up, but we're basically good. That's a view, a worldview that a lot of people hold. That's a worldview that was held, you know, 500 years B.C. by Confucius. His disciples taught that we're all basically good and that we sometimes mess up, but that through our our innate goodness can be developed through education, self-reflection, discipline. It It was this concept that we're basically good. But then you look, for example... You know, this week, the, the Boston Marathon bomber made it on the cover of the Rolling Stone magazine, right? And this is a kid that had education, had family, had all, all the benefits that you could possibly want in life and ended up doing one of the greatest atrocities you could ever imagine, right? So we have to push back. We have to think hard about whether that version of human nature, that description of human nature that we're all basically, is that true? Is that true? It doesn't seem like it in my, in my um, experience. 
Another view of human nature is Pelagianism, and that is we're blank slate. We can go either way. You know, we can go good, we can go bad. Uh, but we're just, we're, we're neutral, right? Um, there is a, a piece of evidence that I would posit to you uh, to push back on that concept. All you have to do is watch a toddler, you know, at about the age of two, and you say, you know what? That baby is not, is not moving innately towards good, right? You have to teach them to be good, right? We were at this little ice cream shop on Del Mar, Tutti Frutti it's called, the other night. There was about a two-and-a-half-year-old toddler. There was a young, young family there. And this little girl, I mean, it sounded like she was demon-possessed. I mean, she was like, she wanted more ice cream. And she's going, Rah! I mean, you could like see... <laughs> it was scary, actually. And the parents were just like, oh. And, um, and, I, and I walk up, you know, and I, and I was trying to, like, break the ice and make it funny. I go, you guys must be really bad parents. And they just looked at me like, and I go, no, 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 I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We got, we've got toddlers, too, you know. They do this for a couple of years. We don't know why. They're just crazy, you know. They're just, um, so the idea that we're neutral, I mean, if we were neutral, morally neutral, as human, if that was our human nature, then we would think that for every book that teaches us how to be good, we would also need a book to teach us how to be bad, right? You know, there are a billion self-help books that teach us how to be better. There really aren't any that teach us how to be bad. We get that pretty naturally. That comes pretty naturally, right? Maybe it's because Paul's description of human nature is accurate, that we lean towards we lean away from God and towards sin. Um, I'll just give you one more uh, a concept of human nature, and that's the idea of human progress. It used to, there used to be a belief that was widely held that we are progressing as a species. We're getting better and better and better. And with the advent of science and reason, we'll just get better and better and better, right? Then the atomic bomb came, and we said, oh, maybe we're not getting better. We have the capacity to wipe out the entire world now. Are we really getting better? Is human nature really on this tra- trajectory towards good? Or is it more like what Paul says? And finally, I'll give you one more. There's one more view of human nature that, that's called amoralism, which means we're neither good nor bad because there is no good nor bad, right? There's a, it's a moral relativism. Everything is just, you know, it, if it's good for you, it's good for you. If it's bad for you, it's bad for you. But there's no, there's no objective good and bad, right? And this is a view that's still held by a lot of people. Um, but then if that's the reality, if that's true, we have to be able to say that, you know, Adolf Hitler killing six million Jews is neither good nor bad. It's just, it's just the way things are, right? That Joseph Stalin killing 20 million Soviet citizens, neither good nor bad, right? Just fine, just normal. Uh, Mao Zedong killing, you know, 50 million Chinese. We have to be able to say, if, if there's no morality, right, if there's neither good nor bad, then we can't attribute a badness to these kinds of things that I think all of us in our heart know to be evil, right? Somewhere deep down in our hearts, we understand, I believe, we understand Paul's view to be correct. Paul's view that we are inherently, before we receive the grace of God, we are inherently broken, we are deeply, we are spiritually dead. We are following our own way to the detriment of our soul. Amen? Usually, usually you will come in here and you will, you know, my, my, my tendency is to preach the victory. You can do it. The, 
But sometimes we have to look back at the scripture and see what Paul is saying about what really are we, right? Because if we really want to celebrate what we've become, we have to understand and comprehend who we were. Amen? C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. When, we, when, you've, when you experience the grace of God, when you experience Christ in your life for the very first time, the one thing that it does is it allows you to see yourself as who you are for the very first time. You get to see the pride, the hubris, the, the, the greed, the lust. You get to see all of the stuff that has been buried in your heart that you didn't realize was there. Or you didn't think it was wrong. And then when the light of God's grace shines upon you, you go, oh man, I, that all was in me, right? And that can be terrifying. I mean, it can be startling. But at the same time, the, the other immediate piece of knowledge that you can get is, and I'm completely forgiven. And I've got God's grace covering me. And I've been washed by his blood. And I am white as snow because of God's sacrifice for me. Amen. I love this psalm that, that David uh, gives us, Psalm 51. David got this idea. He understood who he was. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Purge me with hyssop, Lord. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What's beautiful about this passage is the deep insight that David has of himself. He gets what he is. He understands the depravity of his heart and of his soul and of his mind. He understands it. And that's why the scripture calls David a man after God's own heart. Because David understood who he was in relation to God. And God forgave him for his many, many sins. So Paul puts to us this truth. You were dead in sin. You were broken. You were corrupt. You were flawed. You were completely out of sync with God. Amen? Then this is the part that I like. Ephesians 2, chapter 4. But God, you were this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Then he throws a little parenthetical in because he doesn't want you to forget it. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace, he says again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You were dead, but God. But God, so here's you and here's God, and God changes you. He made you alive in Christ Jesus. 
He brought you out of that death march that you were on towards sin and destruction. He pulled you out. He adopted you. He embraced you. He loved you. He pulled you under his wing. He protected you. He freed you. He liberated you. But God, you see, this week Jameson was trying to put together a puzzle, my, my, my other child, trying to put together a puzzle, and he got really frustrated because he couldn't get the pieces to fit all together. Couldn't get them all in the right slot. And finally, he calls out to me in that voice, Dad! <laughs> you know, the, the voice that like hits you somewhere in here, you know, spikes your blood pressure. Uh, and so I go in there, and, and he, he, he says, I can't get this thing together. So I go, okay. So I got in there, you know, and, you know, I mean, I'm no genius, but it, was, it wasn't a very hard puzzle. I got to be honest with you. Uh, uh, you know, and the pieces went right into place, right? I think that's how we are sometimes. We're here. We're trying to get our lives all together. We're trying to put the puzzle of our life together. We're trying to get the relationships together. We're trying to get the job situation figured out. We're trying to get the relationship with the kids figured out. We're trying to work through school. We're trying to get our career figured out. We're trying to get the, our degrees figured out. We're trying to put all this stuff together. And we, and we hit a wall and we go, I can't do this. My li- I keep trying, but my life is not locking together. It's not fitting together. But God, he comes in as our father and says, let me fix this for you. Stop trying to fix it yourself. That's what I'm here for. You know, you, you're saying, I can't fix this relationship, right? But God, I cannot fix my habit. I've got this habit. I can't stop it. But God, I cannot shake this grief, this relation, this thing that I have in my past, but God, right? My relationship with my kids are strained. I don't know what's going on with them, but God, right? But God can come in, intervene in your life, and change everything. Amen. The scripture says that it's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in you to raise your soul from death to life. And that's what it takes. It takes resurrection power of God to transform your life from being dead to being alive. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot undead yourself. God comes in, breathes life into you, restores you, lifts you up, and brings you into heavenly places with Christ Jesus. I love that part of that scripture where it says, he made us alive together with Christ, he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know, before I became a Christian, there were years that I wasn't a Christian. And my obstacle to becoming a Christian was this. I couldn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I couldn't believe it. I didn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Because I would, my, my question was, a man cannot raise from the dead. I've been, my dad was a pastor. You know, I've been to about a million funerals. I've been a pallbearer, you know. I was like the go-to pallbearer for a while when I was about 16. It's like, we just need one more guy. How about the pastor's son? Uh, so, I mean, I've seen a lot of, funerals. I've been to a lot of memorials. Nobody ever comes alive 
at those things. That never happens. So as a young man, I'm going, I can't believe in the resurrection because I don't understand how a man could be raised from the dead. But then there was that one moment where it came to me. But God. If God raised him from the dead, he could be raised from the dead. Right? If God created the universe, he can suspend the laws of physics for a second and do whatever he wants. He created them. He's the, he's the, he's the architect. He's the builder. He can suspend the laws of the universe and do whatever he wants anytime he wants. Okay, so that opens up the possibility that Jesus rose from the dead, right? And, and by God's grace, I came to believe that with my whole heart. And in my belief and in, in believing, God raised my own soul from the dead. And, that, and that's where you can see, you know, the evidence of the resurrection. A lot of times you see it in your own life. You see yourself different. Things change. Something happened, right? And you're not like you were. It's, it's not that you're perfect. You don't walk around perfect. In fact, Paul says, I die daily. Why? Because the temptation is to let the flesh guide you again, lead you again. You want to start following yourself again. You die daily. Die with Christ. Buried with him. Resurrected with him. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21. I think I've got this scripture. Yeah. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? He made Jesus to become sin even though Jesus knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, if, if we weren't inherently broken by nature, there would have been no need for a crucifixion. It would have just been a cruel play. Right? Because there's no use for it if we can just walk ourselves to God. The central theme of the Bible is that Jesus came so that, and to take our place. He took on our sin. He lived our life. He took on our death so that we could take his glory. We could partake of his glory in heavenly places. He traded places with us. God adopted us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're in the family now. Uh, Brennan Manning says, For me, the most radical demand of Christian faith lies in summoning the courage to say yes to the present risenness of Jesus Christ. And I would add to that the present risenness in our own life. Right? Walking in the light. The beautiful light. Yeah. Right? Didn't we just sing that? That was, that was good. Um, Walking in that newness, walking in that truth, the truth that we are now a new creature. We're not what we were. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And, then, and that leads us to the very third point, and I, w- I won't spend very much time on this, but the now, walking in purpose, right? We were dead. We were made alive. What do we do about that? How do we walk that out? What does that mean? What, are the, what, 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 what underlies what we become now? I remember when I was a kid, we'd go to the camp meetings. You know, do they still have camp meetings? I want to go to a camp meeting sometime. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to go to these camp meetings. And man, they'd have these evangelists that would work you up into a froth. I mean, by the time this evangelist got down, you're just like, whoo, man, I feel something. I feel excited about something. I, I can't remember what he said, but man... They were changing chords and the key progression. And before you know it, you're just, 
Woo! And you walk out of there in the bright light of day and you go, okay, now what? Right? What happened? I got worked up. I got excited. I got, but now what? Right? Ephesians 2, 10, the very last verse in this first, you know, in this first chunk of Ephesians 2, it says, for we are now his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to hold on that word workmanship for a minute. Workmanship. That word, the Greek word there is poema. Poema. That's where we get the word poem. God is saying, Paul is saying, God is saying through Paul, that we are God's artwork. We're his poem in the world. We're his masterpiece. We are his workmanship. We're the, we are the outgrowth of his of his hard work, of his creativity. And he's putting us in the world to live that out, to live out the beauty, to live out the joy, to live out the strength, to live out the service, to live out the responsibility of who we are. You're God's poem. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. You're, 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 made, you're, you're made to be like Jesus. You're his poem. You're his artwork. Uh, N.T. Wright, who's a guy that I really like, he says, sometimes left to ourselves, we lapse into a kind of collusion with entropy. We just sort of, we just sort of fade out. We acquiesce in the general belief that things may be getting worse, but that there's nothing much we can do about them. And N.T. Wright says, and we are wrong. Our task in the present is to live as resurrection people. Resurrection people in between Easter and the final day. Our role here on earth is to live out the power, the strength, the joy, the beauty of being an adopted child of God. What does that mean? That means everything we do, we do for Him. We're not following ourselves anymore. We're following Him. So when we work, we work as unto Him. We're working for Him. When we love our spouse... We're loving her or him as unto God. This is God's baby that I'm taking care of here, right? When we're, when we're at school and we're trying to crank through those studies, we're doing that as unto God. Everything we do, we do it as unto him. We are his workmanship. We're his poem to, to, to do the good deeds that he has preordained beforehand. We are living out what it means to be a child of God. We are representing the family. We're representing the Father, right? We're the body of Christ. We are Christ on earth, corporately. We're not like the guys in Ypsilanti Mental Hospital that think we're individually Jesus. But collectively, as a church, we're lit, we are the body of Christ on the earth. And when people don't know Christ, they don't know Jesus, they look to us. So that's our role. That's how we walk it out. And the rest of Ephesians is going to tell us how to do that a little more uh, explicitly. And I'm going to close with this. There's, an, there's another great song. Because what this, what, this does, what this does is this tells us that we are to walk in victory. That we are to walk in faith. That we are to walk in integrity. That we are to walk as if we understand that we are joint heirs with Jesus. That we are God's children. Right? And there's a great song that says, Victory in Jesus. 
my Savior forever. Remember that? He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. He's made you whiter than snow. You're his poem. You're his workmanship. You're you're his artwork. Walk it out. Walk that out in everything you do. I'm going to close with this verse. John 11, Jesus turns to those who are following him and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. It's a sobering passage to understand that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, or we were dead before your grace. But God, we are so grateful for the truth, for the reality that you breathed life into us. You breathed life into us because you love us, because you want us to be a part of your family, because you desire us to be happy. You desire us to live out the poem that you have created. You desire us to be joint heirs with Jesus. Father, we come before you. We are full of gratitude. And God, we ask that you guide us in the responsibility of representing you, walking out what it means to be a child of God. Teach us, Lord. Open our hearts, open our minds, give us courage, give us strength, empower us, Lord, to walk through this day, to walk through this week in the bright light of your presence. Help us to love one another, help us to serve one another, help us to give to one another, help us to take care of one another, help us, Lord, to be an example to those who don't know you, that they will come to know you by our love one for another. Father, we praise you for this. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.